Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Today, Chapter 4 of King Solomon's Mines by H. Ryder Haggard. An Elephant Hunt. And now, our story. Now, I do not propose to narrate at full length all the incidents of our long travel up to Satanda's Crawl, near the junction of the Lukanga and Kalukwe Rivers. It was a journey of more than a thousand miles from Durban, the last three hundred or so of which we had to make on foot, owing to the frequent presence of the dreadful tsetse fly, whose bite is fatal to all animals except donkeys and men. We left Durban at the end of January, and it was in the second week of May that we camped near Satanda's Crawl. Our adventures on the way were many and various, but as they are of a sort which befall every African hunter, with one exception to be presently detailed, I shall not set them down here, lest I should render this history too wearisome. At Inyati, the outlying trading station in the Matabili country, of which Lobengula, a great and cruel scoundrel, is king, with many regrets we parted from our comfortable wagon. Only twelve oxen remained to us out of the beautiful span of twenty which I had bought at Durban. One we lost from the bite of a cobra, three had perished from poverty and the want of water, one strayed, and the other three died from eating the poisonous herb called tulip. Five more sickened from this cause, but we managed to cure them with doses of an infusion made by boiling down the tulip leaves. If administered in time, this is a very effective antidote. The wagon and the oxen we left in the immediate charge of Goza and Tom, our driver and leader, both trustworthy boys, requesting a worthy Scotch missionary who lived in this distant place to keep an eye on them. Then, accompanied by Umbopa, Kiva, Vent Vogel, and half a dozen bearers whom we hired on the spot, we started off on foot upon our wild quest. I remember we were all a little silent on the occasion of this departure, and I think that each of us was wondering if we should ever see our wagon again. For my part, I never expected to do so. For a while we tramped on in silence, until Umbopa, who was marching in front, broke into a Zulu chant about how some brave men, tired of life and the tameness of things, started off into a vast wilderness to find new things or die, and how, lo and behold, when they had traveled far into the wilderness, they found that it was not a wilderness at all, but a beautiful place full of young wives and fat cattle, of game to hunt, and enemies to kill. Then we all laughed and took it for a good omen. Umbopa was a cheerful savage in a dignified sort of way, when he was not suffering from one of his fits of brooding, and he had a wonderful knack of keeping up our spirits. We all grew very fond of him. And now for the one adventure to which I am going to treat myself, for I do dearly love a hunting yarn. About a fortnight's march from Inyati we came across a peculiarly beautiful bit of well-watered woodland country. The kloofs in the hills were covered with dense bush, Idoro bush, as the natives call it, and in some places with the wakt and beachy, or wait a little thorn, and there were great quantities of the lovely Machabell tree, laden with refreshing yellow fruit having enormous stones. This tree is the elephant's favorite food, and there were not wanting signs that the great brutes had been about, for not only was their spore frequent, but in many places the trees were broken down and even uprooted. The elephant is a destructive feeder. One evening, after a long day's march, we came to a spot of great loveliness. At the foot of a bush-clad hill lay a dry riverbed, in which, however, were to be found pools of crystal water all trodden round with the hoof-prints of game. Facing this hill was a park-like plain, where grew clumps of flat-topped mimosa, varied with occasional glossy-leaved macabells, 
"'and all around stretched the sea of pathless, silent bush. "'As we emerged into this riverbed path, "'suddenly we started a troop of tall giraffes, "'who galloped, or rather sailed off in their strange gait, "'their tails screwed up over their backs, "'and their hoofs rattling like castanets. "'They were about three hundred yards from us, "'and therefore practically out of shot. "'But Good, who was walking ahead, "'and who had an express loaded with solid ball in his hand, "'couldn't resist the temptation. "'Lifting his gun, he let drive at the last, a young cow. "'By some extraordinary chance, "'the ball struck it full on the back of the neck, "'shattering the spinal column, "'and that giraffe went rolling head over heels just like a rabbit. "'I never saw a more curious thing.' "'Curse it!' said Good for I am sorry to say he had a habit of using strong language when excited, contracted, no doubt, in the course of his nautical career. Curse it! I've killed him! Ooh, Bhagwan! ejaculated the Kafirs. Ooh, ooh! They called good Bhagwan, or glass-eye, because of his eyeglass. Oh, Bhagwan! re-echoed Sir Henry and I, and from that day Good's reputation as a marvelous shot was established, at any rate among the Kafirs. Really, he was a bad one, but whenever he missed, we overlooked it for sake of that giraffe. Having set some of the boys to cut off the best of the giraffe's meat, we went to work to build a sherm near one of the pools, and about a hundred yards to its right. This is done by cutting a quantity of thorn bushes and piling them in the shape of a circular hedge. Then the space enclosed is smoothed, and dry tambuki grass, if obtainable, is made into a bed in the center, and a fire or fire is lighted. By the time the sherm was finished, the moon peeped up, and our dinners of giraffe steaks and roasted marrow bones were ready. How we enjoyed those marrow bones, though it was rather a job to crack them. I know of no greater luxury than giraffe marrow, unless it is elephant's heart, and we had that on the morrow. We ate our simple meal by the light of the moon, pausing at times to thank good for his wonderful shot. Then we began to smoke and yarn, and a curious picture we must have made squatting there round the fire. "'I with my short, grizzled hair sticking up straight, "'and Sir Henry with his yellow locks, "'which were getting rather long, "'were rather a contrast, "'especially as I am thin and short and dark, "'weighing only nine stone and a half, "'while Sir Henry is tall and broad and fair "'and weighs fifteen stone. "'But perhaps the most curious-looking of the three, "'taking all circumstances of the case into consideration, "'was Captain John Good, Royal Navy. "'There he sat upon a leather bag, "'looking just as though he had come in from a comfortable day's shooting in a civilized country, "'absolutely clean, tidy, and well-dressed. "'He wore a shooting suit of brown tweed, with a hat to match, and neat gaiters. "'As usual, he was beautifully shaved, his eyeglass and his false teeth appeared to be in perfect order, "'and altogether he looked the neatest man I ever had to do with in the wilderness. "'He even sported a collar, of which he had a supply, made of white gutta percha. "'You see, they weigh so little.' "'he said to me innocently, "'when I expressed my astonishment at the fact, "'and I always liked to turn out like a gentleman. "'Ah, if you could have foreseen the future "'and the raiment prepared for him. "'Well, there we three sat yarning away "'in the beautiful moonlight "'and watching the kafirs a few yards off "'sucking their intoxicating dakka "'from a pipe of which the mouthpiece "'was made of horn of an eland, "'till one by one they rolled themselves "'up in their blankets "'and went to sleep by the fire, "'that is, all except Umbopa, was a little apart, his chin resting on his hand, and thinking deeply. I noticed that he never mixed much with the other kafirs. Presently, from the depths of the bush behind us, came a loud, Woof! 
Woof! That's a lion, said I, and we all started up to listen. Hardly had we done so, when from the pool, about a hundred yards off, we heard the strident trumpeting of an elephant. Ungunkungovo, Idluvu, elephant, elephant, whispered the Kafirs, and a few minutes afterwards we saw a succession of vast shadowy forms moving slowly from the direction of the water towards the bush. Up jumped Good, burning for slaughter, and thinking perhaps that it was as easy to kill elephant as he had found it to shoot giraffe, but I caught him by the arm and pulled him down. "'It seems that we're in a paradise of game. I vote we stop here a day or two and have a go at them,' said Sir Henry presently. I was rather surprised, for hitherto Sir Henry had always been for pushing forward as fast as possible, more especially since we ascertained at Inyati that about two years ago an Englishman of the name of Neville had sold his wagon there and gone up country, but I suppose his hunter instincts got the better of him for a while. Good jumped at the idea, for he was longing to have a shot at those elephants, and so, to speak the truth, did I, for it went against my conscience to let such a herd as that escape without a pull at them. "'All right, my hearties,' said I. "'I think we want a little recreation. "'And now let's turn in, for we ought to be off by dawn, "'and then perhaps we may catch them feeding before they move on.' "'The others agreed, and we proceeded to make our preparations. "'Good took off his clothes, shook them, "'put his eyeglass and his false teeth into his trousers' pocket, "'and folding each article neatly, "'placed it out of the dew under a corner of his Macintosh sheet. "'Sir Henry and I contented ourselves with rougher arrangements.' and soon were curled up in our blankets and dropping off into the dreamless sleep that rewards the traveler. Going, going, go... What was that? Suddenly, from the direction of the water, came sounds of violent scuffling, and next instant there broke upon our ears a succession of the most awful roars. There was no mistake in their origin. Only a lion could make such a noise as that. We all jumped up and looked towards the water, in the direction of which we saw a confused mass, yellow and black in color, "'staggering and struggling towards us. "'We seized our rifles, and slipping on our veldt-shoes, "'that is, shoes made of untanned hide, ran out of the sherm. "'By this time the mass had fallen, and was rolling over and over on the ground, "'and when we reached the spot it struggled no longer, but lay quite still. "'Now we saw what it was. "'On the grass there lay a sable antelope bull, "'the most beautiful of all the African antelopes, quite dead.' and transfixed by its great curved horns was a magnificent black-maned lion, also dead. Evidently what had happened was this. The sable antelope had come down to drink at the pool where the lion, no doubt the same one we had heard, was lying in wait. While the antelope drank, the lion had sprung upon him, only to be received upon the sharp curved horns and transfixed. Once before I saw a similar thing happen. Then the lion, unable to free himself, had torn and bitten at the back and neck of the bull, which, maddened with fear and pain, had rushed on until it dropped dead. As soon as we had examined the beast sufficiently, we called the Kaviers, and between us managed to drag their carcasses up to the sherm. After that we went in and lay down, to wake no more until dawn. With the first light we were up and making ready for the fray. We took with us three eight-bore rifles, a good supply of ammunition, and our large water bottles, filled with weak, cold tea, which I've always found the best stuff to shoot on. After swallowing a little breakfast, we started, Umbopa, Kiva, and Vet Vogel accompanying us. The other kaffirs we left with instructions to skin the lion and the sable antelope, and to cut up the latter. 
we had no difficulty in finding the broad elephant trail, which Ved Vogel, after examination, pronounced to have been made by between twenty and thirty elephants, most of them full-grown bulls. But the herd had moved on some way during the night, and it was nine o'clock, and already very hot, before, by the broken trees, bruised leaves and bark, and smoking droppings, we knew that we could not be far from them. Presently we caught sight of the herd, which numbered, as Vent Vogel had said, between twenty and thirty, standing in a hollow, having finished their morning meal, and flapping their great ears. It was a splendid sight, for they were only about two hundred yards from us. Taking a handful of dry grass, I threw it into the air to see how the wind was, for if once they winded us, I knew they would be off before we could get a shot. Finding that, if anything, it blew from the elephants to us, we crept on stealthily, and thanks to the cover managed to get within forty yards or so of the great brutes. Just in front of us, and broadside on, stood three splendid bulls, one of them with enormous tusks. I whispered to the others that I would take the middle one, Sir Henry covering the elephant to the left, and Good the bull with the big tusks. Now, I whispered. Boom! went the three heavy rifles, and down came Sir Henry's elephant, dead as a hammer, shot right through the heart. Mine fell onto its knees, and I thought that he was going to die, but in another moment he was up and off, tearing along straight past me. As he went I gave him the second barrel in the ribs, and this brought him down in good earnest. Hastily slipping in two fresh cartridges I ran close up to him, and a ball through the brain put an end to the poor brute's struggles. Then I turned to see how good it fared with the big bull, which I had heard screaming with rage and pain as I gave mine its quietus. On reaching the captain I found him in a great state of excitement. It appeared that on receiving the bullet the bull had turned and come straight for his assailant, who had barely time to get out of his way, and then charged on blindly past him in the direction of our encampment. Meanwhile the herd had crashed off in wild alarm in the other direction. For a while we debated whether to go after the wounded bull or to follow the herd, and finally deciding for the latter alternative, departed, thinking that we'd seen the last of those big tusks. I had often wished since that we had. It was easy work to follow the elephants, for they had left a trail like a carriage road behind them, crushing down the thick bush in their furious flight as though it were tambuki grass. But to come up with them was another matter, and we had struggled on under the broiling sun for over two hours before we found them. With the exception of one bull, they were standing together, and I could see, from their unquiet way and the manner in which they kept lifting their trunks to test the air, that they were on the lookout for mischief. The solitary bull stood fifty yards or so to this side of the herd, over which he was evidently keeping sentry, and about sixty yards from us. Thinking that he would see or wind us, and that it would probably start them off again if we tried to get nearer, especially as the ground was rather open, we all aimed at this bull, and at my whispered word we fired. The three shots took effect, and down he went, dead. Again the herd started, but unfortunately for them about a hundred yards further on was a nullah, or dried-out water track, with steep banks, a place very much resembling the one where the Prince Imperial was killed in Zululand. Into this the elephants plunged, and when we reached the edge we found them struggling in wild confusion to get up the other bank, filling the air with their screams, and trumpeting as they pushed one another aside in their selfish panic, just like so many human beings. Now was our opportunity, and firing away as quickly as we could load, we killed five of the poor beasts, and no doubt should have bagged the whole herd, had they not suddenly given up their attempts to climb the bank and rushed headlong down the nullah. We were too tired to follow them, and perhaps also a little sick of slaughter, eight elephants being a pretty good bag for one day, 
"'So after we rested a little, "'and the Kafirs had cut out the hearts "'of two of the dead elephants for supper, "'we started homewards, "'very well pleased with our day's work, "'having made up our minds "'to send the bearers on the morrow "'to chop away the tusks. "'Shortly after we repassed the spot "'where good had wounded the patriarchal bull, "'we came across a herd of Eland, "'but did not shoot at them, "'as we had plenty of meat. "'They trotted past us, "'and then stopped behind a little patch of bush "'about a hundred yards away, "'wheeling round to look at us. "'As Good was anxious to get a dear view of them, "'never having seen an eland close, "'he handed his rifle to Umbopa, "'and followed by Kiva, "'strolled up to the patch of bush. "'We sat down and waited for him, "'not sorry of the excuse for a little rest. "'The sun was just going down in its reddest glory, "'and Sir Henry and I were admiring the lovely scene, "'when suddenly we heard an elephant scream, "'and saw its huge and rushing form "'with an uplifted trunk and tail "'silhouetted against the great fiery globe of the sun. Next second we saw something else, and that was Good and Kiva tearing back towards us with the wounded bull, for it was he, charging after them. For a moment we did not dare to fire, although at that distance it would have been of little use if we had done so, for fear of hitting one of them, and the next a dreadful thing happened. Good fell a victim to his passion for civilized dress. Had he consented to discard his trousers and gaiters like the rest of us, "'and to hunt in a flannel shirt and a pair of belt shoes, "'it would have been all right. "'But as it was, his trousers cumbered him in that desperate race, "'and presently, when he was about sixty yards from us, "'his boot, polished by the dry grass, slipped, "'and down he went on his face right in front of the elephant. "'We gave a gasp, for we knew that he must die, "'and ran as hard as we could towards him. "'In three seconds it had ended, but not as we thought. "'Kiva, the Zulu boy, saw his master fall, and brave lad as he was, turned and flung his assegai straight into the elephant's face. It stuck in his trunk. With a scream of pain, the brute seized the poor Zulu, hurled him to the earth, and placing one huge foot onto his body about the middle, twined its trunk round his upper part, and tore him in two. We rushed up mad with horror, and fired again and again, till presently the elephant fell upon the fragments of the Zulu. As for good, he rose and wrung his hands over the brave man who had given his life to save him, and though I am an old hand, I felt a lump grow in my throat. Umbopa stood contemplating the huge dead elephant and the mangled remains of poor Kiva. "'Ah, well,' he said presently, "'he is dead, but he died like a man.'" We'll return with Chapter 5, right after these sponsor messages. And now Chapter 5, Our March into the Desert. We had killed nine elephants, and it took us two days to cut out the tusks, and having brought them into camp, to bury them carefully in the sand under a large tree, which made a conspicuous mark for miles around. It was a wonderfully fine lot of ivory. I never saw a better, averaging as it did between forty and fifty pounds a tusk. The tusks of the great bull that killed poor Kiva scaled one hundred and seventy pounds the pair, so nearly as we could judge. As for Kiva himself, we buried what remained of him in an ant-bear hole, "'together with an assegai to protect himself with "'on his journey to a better world. "'On the third day we marched again, "'hoping that we might live to return "'to dig up our buried ivory, "'and in due course, after a long and wearisome tramp, "'and many adventures which I have not space to detail, "'we reached Sitanda's Crawl near the Lukanga River, "'the real starting point of our expedition. "'Very well do I recollect our arrival at that place.' To the right was a scattered native settlement with a few stone cattle crawls and some cultivated lands down by the water, where these savages grew their scanty supply of grain 
and beyond it stretched great tracts of waving veld covered with tall grass, over which herds of the smaller game were wandering. To the left lay the vast desert. This spot appears to be the outpost of the fertile country, and it would be difficult to say to what natural causes such an abrupt change in the character of the soil is due. But so it is. Just below our encampment flowed a little stream, on the further side of which is a stony slope, the same down which, twenty years before, I had seen poor Sylvester creeping back after his attempt to reach Solomon's mines, and beyond that slope begins the waterless desert, covered with a species of karoo shrub. It was evening when we pitched our camp, and the great ball of the sun was sinking into the desert, sending glorious rays of many-colored light flying all over its vast expanse. Leaving good to superintend the arrangement of our little camp, I took Sir Henry with me, and walking to the top of the slope opposite, we gazed across the desert. The air was very clear, and far, far away I could distinguish the faint blue outlines, here and there capped with white, of the Suleiman Berg. There, I said, there is the wall round Solomon's mines, but God knows if we shall ever climb it. My brother should be there, and if he is, I shall reach him somehow, said Sir Henry, in that tone of quiet confidence which marked the man. I hope so, I answered, and turned to go back to the camp, "'when I saw that we were not alone. "'Behind us, also gazing earnestly towards the far-off mountains, "'stood the great Kafir Umbopa. "'The Zulu spoke when he saw that I had observed him, "'addressing Sir Henry, to whom he had attached himself. "'It is to that land that thou wouldst journey in Kubu?' "'A native word meaning, I believe, an elephant, "'and the name given to Sir Henry by the Kafirs,' he said, "'pointing towards the mountain with his broad asegai. I asked him sharply what he meant by addressing his master in that familiar way. It is very familiar for natives to have a name for one among themselves, but it is not decent that they should call a white man by their heathenish appellations to his face. The Zulu laughed a quiet little laugh which angered me. "'How dost thou know that I am not the equal of the Inkosi whom I serve?' he said. "'He is of a royal house, no doubt. One can see it in his size and by his mien. And so mayhap am I. At least... I am as great a man. Be my mouth, O Makumazan, and say my words to the Nkuz and Kubu, my master, for I would speak to him and to thee. I was angry with the man, for I am not accustomed to be talked to in that way by Kafirs, but somehow he impressed me, and besides I was curious to know what he had to say. So I translated, expressing my opinion at the same time that he was an impudent fellow and that his swagger was outrageous. Yes, Umbopa, "'answered Sir Henry. "'I would journey there. "'The desert is wide, and there is no water in it. "'The mountains are high and covered with snow. "'And man cannot say what lies behind them "'behind the place where the sun sets. "'How shalt thou come thither in Kubu? "'And wherefore dost thou go?' "'I translated again. "'Tell him,' answered Sir Henry, "'that I go because I believe that a man of my blood, "'my brother, has gone there before me, "'and I journey to seek him.' "'That is so in Kubu. "'A Hottentot I met on the road told me that a white man went out into the desert two years ago "'towards those mountains with one servant, a hunter, and they never came back.' "'How do you know it was my brother?' asked Sir Henry. "'Nay, I know not. "'But the Hottentot, when I asked what the white man was like, "'he said that he had thine eyes and a black beard. "'He said, too, that the name of the hunter with him was Jim, "'that he was a Bechuana hunter and wore clothes.' "'Well, there's no doubt about it,' said I. 
I knew Jim well. Sir Henry nodded. I was sure of it, he said. If George set his mind upon a thing, he generally did it. It was always so from his boyhood. If he meant to cross the Suleiman Berg, he has crossed it, unless some accident overtook him, and we must look for him on the other side. Umbopa understood English, though he rarely spoke it. It is a far journey in Kubu, he put in, and I translated his remark. Yes, answered Sir Henry, it is far, but there is no journey upon this earth that a man may not make if he sets his heart to it. There is nothing, Umbopa, that he cannot do. There are no mountains he may not climb. There are no deserts he cannot cross, save a mountain and a desert of which you are spared the knowledge. If love leads him, and he holds his life in his hands, counting it as nothing, ready to keep it or lose it, as heaven above may order. I translated. Great words, my father, answered the Zulu. I always called him a Zulu, though he was not really one. Great swelling words, fit to fill the mouth of a man. Thou art right, my father in Kubu. Listen, what is life? It is a feather. It is the seed of the grass, blown hither and thither, sometimes multiplying itself and dying in the act, sometimes carried away into the heavens. But if that seed be good and heavy, it may perchance travel a little way on the road it wills. It is well to try and journey one's road, and to fight with the air. Man must die. At the worst, he can but die a little sooner. I will go with thee across the desert, and over the mountains, unless perchance I fall to the ground on the way, my father. He paused a while, and then went on with one of those strange bursts of rhetorical eloquence that Zulus sometimes indulge in, which to my mind, full though they are of vain repetitions, show that the race is by no means devoid of poetic instinct, and of intellectual power. What is life? Tell me, O white men, who are wise, who know the secrets of the world, and of the world of stars, and the world that lies above and around the stars, who flash your words from afar without a voice. Tell me, white men, the secret of our life, whither it goes, and whence it comes. You cannot answer me, you know not. Listen, and I will answer. Out of the dark we came, into the dark we go. Like a storm-driven bird at night we fly out of the nowhere. For a moment our wings are seen in the light of the fire, and lo, we are gone again into the nowhere. Life is nothing. Life is all. It is the hand which we hold off death. It is the glow-worm that shines in the night-time and is black in the morning. It is the white breath of the oxen in winter. It is the little shadow that runs across the grass and loses itself at sunset. You are a strange man, said Sir Henry, when he had ceased. Umbopa laughed. It seems to me that we are much alike in Kubu. Perhaps I seek a brother over the mountains. I looked at him suspiciously. What dost thou mean? I asked. What dost thou know of those mountains? A little, a very little. There is a strange land yonder, a land of witchcraft and beautiful things, a land of brave people and of trees and streams and snowy peaks and of a great white road. I have heard it. But what is the good of talking? It grows dark. Those who live to see... We'll see. Again I looked at him doubtfully. The man knew too much. You need not fear me, Makumazan, he said, interpreting my look. I dig no holes for you to fall in. I make no blots. If ever we cross those mountains behind the sun, I will tell what I know. But death sits upon them. 
"'Be wise now, and turn back. "'Go and hunt elephants, my masters. "'I have spoken.' "'And without another word he lifted his spear in salutation "'and returned towards the camp, "'where shortly afterwards we found him cleaning a gun "'like any other kaffir. "'That is an odd man,' said Sir Henry. "'Yes,' answered I. "'Too odd by half. "'I don't like his little ways. "'He knows something and will not speak out. "'But I surprise it is no use quarreling with him. "'We are in for a curious trip, "'and a mysterious Zulu won't make much difference "'one way or another.' "'Next day we made our arrangements for starting. "'Of course it was impossible to drag our heavy elephant rifles "'and other kit with us across the desert. "'So dismissing our bearers, "'we made an arrangement with an old native "'who had a crawl close by to take care of them till we returned.' It went to my heart to leave such things as those sweet tools to the, to the tender mercies of an old thief of a savage whose greedy eyes I could see gloating over them. But I took some precautions. First of all, I loaded all the rifles, placing them at full cock, and informed him that if he touched them, they would go off. He tried the experiment instantly with my eight-bore, and it did go off, and blew a hole right through one of his oxen, which were just then being driven up to the crawl, to say nothing of knocking him head over heels with the recoil. He got up considerably startled, and not at all pleased at the loss of the ox, which he had the impudence to ask me to pay for, and nothing would induce him to touch the guns again. "'Put the live devils out of the way up there in the hatch,' he said, "'or they will murder us all.' Then I told him that, when we came back, if one of those things was missing, I would kill him and his people by witchcraft, and if we died and he tried to steal the rifles, I would come and haunt him, and turn his cattle mad and his milk sour, till life was a weariness, and would make the devils in the guns come out and talk to him in a way he did not like, and generally gave him a good idea of judgment to come. After that he promised to look after them as though they were his father's spirit. He was a very superstitious old kaffir, and a great villain. Having thus disposed of our superfluous gear, we arranged the kit we five, Sir Henry, Good, myself, Umbopa, and the Hottentot Ben Bogle, were to take with us on our journey. It was small enough, but do what we would, we could not get its weight down under about forty pounds a man. This is what it consisted of. The three express rifles and two hundred rounds of ammunition. The two Winchester repeating rifles for Umbopa and Ben Bogle, with two hundred rounds of cartridge. Five Cochran's water bottles, each holding four pints. Five blankets. Twenty-five pounds weight of biltong, that's sun-dried game flesh. Ten pounds weight of best mixed beads for gifts. A selection of medicine, including an ounce of quinine and one or two small surgical instruments. Our knives, a few sundries, such as a compass, matches, a pocket filter, tobacco, a trowel, a bottle of brandy, and the clothes we stood in. This was our total equipment, a small one indeed for such a venture, but we dared not attempt to carry more. Indeed, that load was a heavy one per man with which to travel across the burning desert, for in such places every additional ounce tells. But we could not see our way to reducing the weight. There was nothing taken but what was absolutely necessary. With great difficulty, and by the promise of a present of a good hunting knife each, I succeeded in persuading three wretched natives from the village to come with us for the first stage, twenty miles, and to carry a large gourd holding a gallon of water apiece. My object was to enable us to refill our water bottles after the first night's march, for we determined to start in the cool of the evening. I gave out to these natives that we were going to shoot ostriches, with which the desert abounded. They jabbered and shrugged their shoulders, 
saying that we were mad and should perish of thirst, which I must say seemed probable. But being desirous of obtaining the knives, which were almost unknown treasures up there, they consented to come, having probably reflected that, after all, our subsequent extinction would be no affair of theirs. All next day we rested and slept, and at sunset ate a hearty meal of fresh beef washed down with tea. The last, as good remarked sadly, we were likely to drink for many a long day. Then, having made our final preparations, we lay down and waited for the moon to rise. At last, about nine o'clock, up she came in all her glory, flooding the wild country with light, and throwing a silver sheen on the expanse of rolling desert before us, which looked as solemn and quiet, as alien to man as the star-studded firmament above. We rose up, and in a few minutes were ready, and yet we hesitated a little, as human nature is prone to hesitate on the threshold of an irrevocable step. We three white men stood by ourselves. Umbopa, a segai in hand and rifle across his shoulders, looked out fixedly across the desert a few paces ahead of us, while the hired natives, with the gourds of water and vent vogel, were gathered in a little knot behind. Gentlemen, said Sir Henry presently, in his deep voice, we are getting on as about as strange a journey as men can make in this world. It is very doubtful we can succeed, but we are three men who will stand together for good or for evil to the last. Now, before we start, let us for a moment pray to the power who shapes the destinies of men, and whose ages since has marked out our paths, that it may please him to direct our steps in accordance with his will. Taking off his hat, for the space of a minute or so, he covered his face with his hands, and Good and I did likewise. I do not say that I am a first-rate praying man. Few hunters are. And as for Sir Henry, I never heard him speak like that before, and only once since, though deep down in his heart I believe that he is very religious. Good, too, is pious, though apt to swear. Anyhow, I do not remember, excepting on one single occasion, ever putting up a better prayer in my life than I did during that minute, and somehow I felt the happier for it. Our future was so completely unknown, and I think that the unknown and the awful always bring a man nearer to his maker. And now, said Sir Henry, trek. And so we started. We had nothing to guide ourselves by except the distant mountains and old José de Silvestre's chart, which, considering that it was drawn by a dying and half-distraught man on a fragment of linen three centuries ago, was not a very satisfactory sort of thing to work with. Still, our sole hope of success depended upon it, such as it was. If we failed in finding that pool of bad water which the old dom marked as being situated in the middle of the desert, about sixty miles from our starting point, and as far from the mountains, in all probability we must perish miserably of thirst. But to my mind the chances of our finding it in that great sea of sand and karoo shrub seemed almost infinitesimal. Even supposing that de Silvestre had marked the pool correctly, what was there to prevent its having dried up by the sun generations ago, or trampled in by game, or filled with drifting sand? On we tramped silently as shades through the night and in the heavy sand. The karoo bushes caught our feet and retarded us, and the sand worked into our velt shoes and good shooting boots, so that every few miles we had to stop and empty them. But still the night kept fairly cool, though the atmosphere was thick and heavy, giving a sort of creamy feel to the air, and we made fair progress. It was very silent and lonely there in the desert, oppressively so indeed. Good felt this, and once began to whistle, The girl I left behind me, but the note sounded lugubrious in that vast place, and he gave it up. 
"'Shortly afterwards a little incident occurred "'which, though it startled us at the time, "'gave rise to a laugh. "'Good was leading as the holder of the compass, "'which, being a sailor, of course he understood thoroughly, "'and we were toiling along in single file behind him, "'when suddenly we heard a sound of an explanation, "'and he vanished. "'Next second there arose all around us "'a most extraordinary hubbub, "'snorts, groans, and wild sounds of rushing feet. "'In the faint light, too, "'we could descry dim galloping forms "'half hidden by wreaths of sand. "'The natives threw down their loads "'and prepared to bolt. "'But remembering that there was nowhere to run to, "'they cast themselves upon the ground "'and howled out that it was ghosts. "'As for Sir Henry and myself, "'we stood amazed. "'Nor was our amazement lessened "'when we perceived the form of good "'careering off in the direction of the mountains, "'apparently mounted on the back of a horse, "'and hallowing wildly.' In another second he threw up his arms, and we heard him come to the earth with a thud. Then I saw what had happened. We'd stumbled upon a herd of sleeping quagga, and onto the back of one which good actually had fallen, and the brute naturally enough got up and made off with him. Calling out to the others that it was all right, I ran towards good, much afraid lest he should be hurt. But to my great relief I found him sitting in the sand, his eyeglass still fixed firmly in his eye, rather shaken, and very much frightened, but not in any way injured. After this we traveled on without any further misadventures until about one o'clock, when we called a halt, and having drunk a little water, not much, for water was precious, and rested for half an hour, we started again. On and on we went, till at last the east began to blush like the cheek of a girl. Then there came faint rays of primrose light that changed presently to golden bars through which the dawn glided out across the desert. The stars grew pale and paler still, till at last they vanished. The golden moon waxed wan, and her mountain ridges stood out against her sickly face like the bones on the cheek of a dying man. Then came spear upon spear of light flashing far away across the boundless wilderness, piercing and firing the veils of mist, till the desert was draped in a tremulous golden glow, and it was day. Still we did not halt, though by this time we should have been glad enough to do so, for we knew that when once the sun was fully up it would be almost impossible for us to travel. At length, about an hour later, we spied a little pile of boulders rising out of the plain, and to this we dragged ourselves. As luck would have it, here we found an overhanging slab of rock carpeted beneath with smooth sand, which offered a most grateful shelter from the heat. Underneath this we crept, and each of us having drunk some water and eaten a bit of biltong, we lay down, and soon were sound asleep. It was three o'clock in the afternoon before we woke, to find our bearers preparing to return. They had seen enough of the desert already, and no number of knives would have tempted them to come a step further. So we took a hearty drink, and having emptied our water bottles, filled them up again from the gourds that they had brought with them, and then watched them depart on their twenty miles tramp home. At half past four we also started. It was lonely and desolate work, for with the exception of a few ostriches there was not a single living creature to be seen on all the vast expanse of sandy plain. Evidently it was too dry for game, "'and with the exception of a deadly-looking cobra or two, "'we saw no reptiles. "'One insect, however, we found abundant, "'and that was the common house-fly. "'There they came, not as single spies, but in battalions, "'as I think the Old Testament says somewhere. "'He is an extraordinary insect, is the house-fly. "'Go where you will, you find him, and so it must have been always. "'I have seen him enclosed in amber, which is, I was told, "'quite half a million years old.' "'looking exactly like his descendant of today, "'and I have little doubt "'but that when the last man lies dying on the earth, "'he will be buzzing around, 
if this event happens to occur in summer, watching for an opportunity to settle on his nose. At sunset we halted, waiting for the moon to rise. At last she came up, beautiful and serene as ever, and, with one halt about two o'clock in the morning, we trudged on wearily through the night, till at last the welcome sun put a period to our labors. We drank a little and flung ourselves down on the sand, thoroughly tired out, and soon were all asleep. There was no need to set a watch, for we had nothing to fear from anybody or anything in that vast, untenanted plain. Our only enemies were heat, thirst, and flies, but far rather would I have faced any danger from man or beast than that awful trinity. This time we were not so lucky as to find a sheltering rock to guard us from the glare of the sun, with the result that at about seven o'clock we woke up experiencing the exact sensations one would attribute to a beefsteak on a gridiron. We were literally being baked through and through. The burning sun seemed to be sucking our very blood out of us. We sat up and gasped. Phew, said I, grabbing at the halo of flies which buzzed cheerfully around my head. The heat didn't affect them. My word, said Sir Henry. It is hot, echoed Good. It was hot indeed, and there was not a bit of shelter to be found. Look where we would, there was no rock or tree, nothing but an unending glare, rendered dazzling by the heated air that danced over the surface of the desert as it dances over a red-hot stove. "'What is to be done?' asked Sir Henry. "'We can't stand this for long.' We looked at each other blankly. "'I haven't,' said Good. "'We must dig a hole, get in it, and cover ourselves with the karoo bushes.' It did not seem a very promising suggestion, but at least it was better than nothing. So we set to work, and with the trowel we had brought with us, and the help of our hands, in about an hour we succeeded in delving out a patch of ground some ten feet long by twelve feet wide at the depth of two feet. Then we cut a quantity of low scrub with our hunting knives, and creeping into the hole, pulled it over us all, with the exception of Vent Vogel, on whom, being a hottentot, the heat had no particular effect. This gave us some slight shelter from the burning rays of the sun, but the atmosphere in that amateur grave can be better imagined than described. The black hole of Calcutta must have been a fool to it. Indeed, to this moment, I do not know how we lived through the day. There we lay panting, and every now and then moistening our lips from our scanty supply of water. Had we followed our inclinations, we should have finished all we possessed in the first two hours, but we were forced to exercise the most rigid care, for if our water failed us, we knew that very soon we must perish miserably. But everything has an end, if only you live long enough to see it, and somehow that miserable day wore on towards evening. About three o'clock in the afternoon we determined that we could bear it no longer. It would be better to die walking than to be killed slowly by heat and thirst in this dreadful hole. So taking each of us a little drink from our fast-diminishing supply of water, now warmed to about the same temperature as a man's blood, we staggered forward. We had then covered some fifty miles of wilderness. If the reader will refer to the rough copy and translation of old De Sylvester's map, he will see that the desert is marked as measuring forty leagues across, and the pan bad water is set down as being about in the middle of it. Now, forty leagues is one hundred and twenty miles. Consequently, we ought at the most to be within twelve or fifteen miles of the water, if any should really exist. Through the afternoon we crept slowly and painfully along, scarcely doing more than a mile and a half in an hour. At sunset we rested again, waiting for the moon, and after drinking a little managed to get some sleep. 
Before we lay down, Umbopa pointed out to us a slight and indistinct hillock on the flat surface of the plain about eight miles away. At the distance it looked like an ant hill, and as I was dropping off to sleep, I fell to wondering what it could be. With the moon we marched again, feeling dreadfully exhausted, and suffering tortures from thirst and prickly heat. Nobody who has not felt it can know what we went through. We walked no longer. We staggered, now and again falling from exhaustion, and being obliged to call a halt every hour or so. We had scarcely energy left in us to speak. Up to this good had chatted and joked, for he is a merry fellow, but now he had not a joke in him. At last, about two o'clock, utterly worn out in body and mind, we came to the foot of the queer hill, or sand copy, which at first sight resembled a gigantic ant-heap about a hundred feet high, and covering at the base nearly two acres of ground. Here we halted, and driven to it by our desperate thirst, sucked down our last drops of water. We had but half a pint ahead, and each of us could have drunk a gallon. Then we lay down. Just as I was dropping off to sleep, I heard Umbopa remark to himself in Zulu, "'If we cannot find water, we shall all be dead before the moon rises tomorrow.' I shuddered, hot as it was. The near prospect of such an awful death is not pleasant, but even the thought of it could not keep me from sleeping. Thanks for joining us for chapters 4 and 5 of King Solomon's Minds by H. Ryder Haggard. We'll return next Sunday night with a brand new episode. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon. You are listening to 1001 Stories for the Road, a proud part of 1001 Stories Network. This is your host, John Hagedorn. We appreciate your sharing the show with others, and we appreciate reviews. Thank you.